Welcome, everyone. Welcome to We Earth Radio. I'm your host, Michael Stone, and I am so excited to have my friend Lynn Twist here today. She is a global visionary and activist committed to creating a future that is environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, and socially just. She's the co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance, the founder of the Soul of Money Institute, and the author of the best-selling book, The Soul of Money. Over the past 40 years, she's worked with people in 50 countries and over 100,000 people, as well as many organizations and companies, inspiring them to expand how they see themselves and empowering them to express their commitment and their creativity to secure the future of all life. And today, we're going to get to talk about her new book, Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself. Lynn, so great to be with you. So great to be with you, Michael Stone. How are all long time friends and long time and yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's see what just let's talk with what you're always inspired, but what is the the inspiration that of living a committed life of service? And how did that inspiration, the initial the initial inspiration, how did that kind of set you off on your path? Um, well, I think I, I always go back to the taproot of the um, my relationship with Buckminster Fuller, the great um, engineer, architect, grandfather of the future of the 20th century, who I I knew and, and was able to be with quite a bit in ways that um, was a great privilege for me, and Werner Erhard, the founder of EST and the landmark work, um, had those two extraordinary human beings had a huge impact on my life and um they came together uh in 1976 uh 1977 and out of their relationship uh there were many sources of the hunger project uh organization but for me the the hunger project was born out of their relationship with each other and i, I had a hand in that and and when when Bucky uh, said, declared and claimed uh, that his life was about an experiment, could a little individual make a difference uh, with their life that would positively impact all of humanity? Could he live a life where he creates a world that works for everyone with no one and nothing left out? I was so inspired by that. That talked about inspiration. I thought, oh my God, what an incredible statement. What an incredible vision what an incredible commitment and then Werner Erhard who really was living and expressing the uh, commitment to create a world that works for everyone with no one and nothing left out that really that phrase really comes from him uh, I just thought I'm on that team whatever that means and then the hunger project was really born out of all of that and the hunger project became my life's work at that time um, and it was deeply deeply inspiring to me to even contemplate consider and then be someone who was inventing and generating a conversation to make the end of hunger and starvation an idea whose time has come. So that's kind of the taproot of my uh, committed life. And, uh, and that's the, you know, the best answer I can give you to the question. Um, but I'd also say my mother and father, my, my upbringing, my mother was a very active person in the community. My father was a, a very inspiring man, a, a musician. Um, you know, that set the stage for, for me to see that I could step into that kind of a life. So. Yeah. 
we have a lot of the same influence. I remember uh, in San Rafael, probably the last talk that Bucky did, at least in California, and I was talking to him and he pinched me on the cheek and he said, keep up the good work. And I just felt like I found my grandfather, you know, yeah, right. whatever he did, I want to do, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, such an amazing thing. And then here we are um, close to 50 years later, 40 some, some years. And, um, you know, if you look at the media, the mainstream media or the social media, and it's really easy to fall into despair and doubt and denial and depression and the sense of hopelessness. So I, I see a lot of people just getting overwashed, over, overwhelmed with them. So how do we shift our focus from this overwhelm to really living a more meaningful life? Um, well, I get in overwhelm all the time, so I want to make sure I own that. Uh, at the same time, uh, when we're overwhelmed, often the context of our life is too small for the content. It's like a, a lifeboat that has too many people in it, so it sinks, you know. It's too, the, the, the what we're holding, how we're holding ourselves is is too small for what's coming through. So we become overwhelmed, we come, become, it overflows and seeps through cracks. If we create a larger context, I'm saying it kind of physically, but I mean um, almost spiritually, ontologically, everything starts to flow. So um, for example, uh, the times we're living in, I say the epic, epic times we're living in, uh, are not happening to us like we're a victim of the terrible divisiveness in the United States or the victim of a pandemic that's taken so many lives and made us all worry about being sick or getting sick. Or we're not the victim of the climate crisis, even though horrible thing that the earthquake in, in, in Turkey, um, as much as we think or our conversation is we're the victim of something. When we actually create a larger context or a reframe, or you could say a, a new narrative, it all can not, it's not that the disasters and the illnesses and the, and the death and the destruction that's happening right now in Turkey and Syria goes away, uh, or the pandemic goes away, or the climate crisis goes away, or the political divisiveness goes away. It's still there, but there's a, a way to hold it so that you can be with it instead of be at the effect of it and even have some sovereignty about how you uh, relate to it. So I'll, I'm gonna give you an example that comes from the indigenous people that we work with in the Andes and the Amazon. Um, the pandemic, I'm gonna use that as my example, which we all got grossly you know, humbled by uh, and became at the effect of, and you know, got sick and or had to stay inside or or people died, um, people that we loved. It seemed like a scourge. But another way of looking at it, the indigenous people um, in particular have said in the, in some primordial place of who we are as a species, we've been waiting and yearning and longing and almost praying for something sacred and powerful enough to disrupt the way we were living 
that we tried to disrupt, disrupt ourselves, but we couldn't, knowing that we're off course, knowing that we're heading towards our own demise, our own destruction, and being so powerful in the institutions and structures we built that are he- that are kind of forcing us in this direction that's 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 not going to turn out so that we yearned and almost prayed for something powerful and sacred enough to disrupt that trajectory and make us rethink and reboot and re-examine and kind of go home stay inside but also go home here and relook at the way we're living now um I, I know that, you know, many people would say, well, we're back, back business as usual. I say, no, we're not at all. We're, you know, there are some things we've gone back to that we're ashamed to be once again participating in, but we know better now. We really do know better. We are abhorred by the oil companies having their best quarter ever this, this last quarter profitable. We know that's not right and that they're not paying taxes. No one wants that, including the oil companies themselves. They're, they're embarrassed. The, um, the experience of the climate crisis is so palpable. You know, if you've got your houses on fire and you're flooded or you're in a place where you're, you know, physically impacted by it, which is everybody now in some way or another, illnesses, autism, rampant, you know, cancer all over the place, people getting suicide, committing suicide, young people, because they don't think we have a future. You can't deny it anymore. No, and, and anybody who does is, is, is considered crazy. Um, so I'll say that the, the pandemic, I'll use that as an example. One way of looking at it, it's morning sickness mm. for, a, for a species that's pregnant with a new emerging evolutionary leap. Now that's, I can't prove that, but I think that's a way to look at it. It's not happening to us, it's happening for us. It's not a punishment, it's an ally. And it's a harsh, you know, fierce ally with lots of consequences. But Paul Hawkins says, you know, the, 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 the climate crisis is feedback. We're not the victims of it. We created it. And it's giving us the feedback that's so strong that we need that. And it's happening for us to make the course corrections that are huge that we couldn't make without harsh, you know, intense feedback. So, you know, what I'm trying to say is, if you have, and I'm sure that you're doing your trauma work, you're, you're doing this too. The trauma that individuals experience and the breakdowns always have the seeds of a breakthrough that's bigger than the breakdown. And if we're willing to look for that and open our arms to that, then not only can we be with the, the depressing, scary, confronting, you know, kind of heartbreaking reality of the world we can see it as uh the feedback we need to to become the kind of human family that we know it's ours to become to become a species that is a contributing uh finding our rightful role and the indigenous people have saying we're being humbled because we need to be uh by these climactic events 
by the pandemic. And when you're pregnant as a woman and you don't know you're pregnant, you think you're sick. You really do think you're sick. It feels terrible. You're throwing up in the morning. You're, you're, you know, you're getting exhausted by 3 p.m. You can't, there's things you can't eat. You feel funny. You have nausea sometimes in the middle of the night. You can't sleep. And then you go to the doctor, you find that you're pregnant. And it's like, oh, I'm going to have a baby. And then you have a vision. And as my friend Reb D, I was just with her. She says, pain pushes until vision pulls. Mm. So we're in the pain part and we need to create the vision, which will pull us through the pain. So that's, um, that's a long response to your question, because I think people need a context, a narrative, a, a, a space that they can see that all this turmoil that's happening is as Bucky predicted it would, you probably remember. He said all the institutions of humankind in 50 years, he said this is in 1976, will eventually become so dysfunctional that they will start falling apart and we won't be able to fix them anymore. We won't be able to prop them up. We will have to let them go, hospice their natural death and bring forth new structures and systems that are consistent with a you and me world rather than a you or me world. A partnership model rather than a dominator model. A, 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 heart, a reunion of the heart and mind of humanity uh, rather than an overwhelming patriarchy. Uh, a, 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 a decolonization of not just the political landscape of the world, but the decolonization of our, of our hearts and minds and souls. So that's a story, that's a narrative. I can't prove it, but I want to live in that narrative. And that lifts one out of depression and despair and anger and into, let's generate the possibility of this time and know that we can get through this and it will strengthen us. It will make us who we need to be to give birth to a new kind of human being. That's brilliant. I love that. You know, in working with trauma a lot, I've found that the two outcomes of trauma response, the first one is a sense of separation. And the second one is a, an experience of scarcity, not enough of anything, which yes. you talk about a lot. And uh, just to weave that in with the, um, that separation, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of her name, uh, the climate scientist that I've been working with, but she's, she's saying that um, climate change is, is a relationship issue. It's not a political issue, it has political consequences, it's not a technology issue. It's, it's, it's really a relationship issue. So the first thing is that we have this lack of, uh, you call in your book, uh, a you and me life, or as Bucky says, the you are me life. Mm -hmm. So talk about that and how that larger context has to include beyond ourself. It's not a self context. Yeah. Well, the larger context is to realize that we're in the continuum of evolution mm -hmm. and that we are beings. We are souls. We are beings. We are manifestation. We are incarnated on this planet as human beings. And we're part of the community of life. And that this is an epic, epic, epic time when this particular species calls human beings have become so powerful 
that we have um, entered into from the Holocene period to the Anthropocene and to be responsible for being, it began in 1977, uh, according to Christiana Figueres, who, who, uh, uh, who facilitated the Paris Accords, um, we're now in the Anthropocene, so we're responsible for the future. And that is, a, is both a, 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 a little bit daunting but it's also, it ennobles our lives. It, it gives us agency to create the future, realizing that it is in our hands. Um, the earth will be fine, but whether or not we have a future, uh, a viable, livable future is, uh, is in our hands. And that agency, that, um, that power, and really that accountability, that responsibility, is a privilege really, and, and, and can be if we hold it uh, this way, ennobling. Gives us the opportunity, as we say in the symposium, which I know you deliver from time to time, it gives us the opportunity to live the most meaningful lives any generation of humankind has ever lived, knowing that the choices we make impact the future of life for a thousand years. Um, <clears throat> that's not a burden, that's ennobling us. That's, that's really saying your life matters. So, um, that's an opportunity to step up, step, step in, uh, step out, and step out of a little life starring us about our own wants and needs and desires is, is, it starts to show up as petty in the face of the epic uh, challenges we're facing as a human family. And, and Bucky, Bucky always thought in long swaths of time and we we're, we sometimes are limited to our own little lifetime and what can we take credit for and what can we put on our tombstone and what can we check off on our to-do list. But really we're in a big long continuum. And what is the contribution we're making to that continuum of life, that evolutionary story. Uh, and that gives you some humility and also the opportunity and the privilege of being a contribution and getting in the flow, the, the, the natural flow. So, you know, like I, I'll just say that that's when you become one with it, which is what you're kind of pointing to. And the indigenous people of the Amazon, for example, the, the people that you and I have been so fortunate to know and, and, and be with, um, <clears throat> you know, they're not perfect. They have all kinds of problems too, but they're not there defending the forest, the Amazon rainforest. They are of the forest. They are the forest, you know, maintaining and expressing itself. They are one with it. As you and I are human incarnations of the earth, you know, you know, finding finding her her full self-expression in what 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 it means to be human. So that oneness, that interconnectivity, that we are each otherness, that not you or me, but you and me that you just spoke about, that's, that's really, I think, the radical surprising truth and the lie of scarcity, the lie of separation is the fundamental come from or ground of being of our institutions our governance, our religions, our, our educational system, and cer cer certainly the economy in a way that keeps us in this illusion that we're separate from each other, from other species, from the earth, rather than 
it's a continuum of the flow of life. You know, when you and I breathe, I breathe in the molecules and the energy of people who lived 500 years ago. And and also of the raccoons and the squirrels and the leaves and the and the and the twigs and you and me and you know it's it's we are completely interconnected mm-hmm. we are each other and it's hard to stay with that because the institutions and the scientific kind of direction that we've gone has 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 separated us so so deeply in the narrative of how we see ourselves but that's what you and I have been working on our whole lives is reclaiming that oneness, reclaiming it and having it transform our perception, our worldview. And I really appreciate your work in trauma now that you told me is your kind of the focus of your work now, because as you just said, trauma is a, is a, is a, is a, 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 one of the ways we, we separate ourselves and go into fear of not enough. I'm not enough, you're not enough, it's not enough. So I love that connection you're making with the work that we've done together for so long. Yeah. You know, um, by the way, Karen O'Brien was who I was talking about that I was quoting in terms of it's a relationship issue that climate change is primarily a relationship issue. But also many scientists have moved beyond the Anthropocene and are now talking about the Pyrocene being the time we're moving in. And what is that? What is pyrocene? Tell pyro me. means fire. Oh, uh-huh. the pyrocene, time mm-hmm. of fire. And so, when you look at that, I one of the reasons I I I like that is it puts a fire under it. It's like yeah. this is critical. This is important to wake up. And mm-hmm. one of the things that a lot of people had trouble understanding during the hunger project was what does it mean to take a stand? Because I think that's that whole thing with the hunger project was many people never really got that was that idea of creating an idea whose time has come, as Bucky said. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about taking a stand? Yeah, well, taking a stand is is uh, is a topic in my book and something that I really think is a you know a a, a a distinction. And I I distinguish taking a stand from taking a position. And when you take a position, um, the dynamics of positionality is if you say right, it creates left. If you say up, it creates down. In other words, positionality creates its oppositionality. Each position creates its opposition. So if I say pro-choice, it creates pro-life, really. And if I get more adamant about pro-choice, pro-life gets more adamant. You know, it, it's positionality that it 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 creates the the opposite um or another way of talking about positionality is point of view and a point of view is actually if you think about it almost like physically a point from which we view the world so if you're in a a football stadium and you're on the 50 yard line you have this point of view of the of the whole field if you're in the end zone you have a completely different point of view of the game. If you don't realize that your point of view is totally 100% accurate for you and start arguing with a person whose point of view is at the end zone and they say, well, no, that's not how it looked to me. He threw it across the field and that that's 100% accurate for their point of view. They're, they're seeing it from a different point of view. Or if you're in a room 
or a, a, a theater, you know, you see the, the same thing from two different points of view. So you see it from a different point of view. And that's true of, of positionality. So when you take a stand, you actually relinquish your point of view or your position. And what you receive from, relinqu from, from relinquishing that or letting it go is you receive vision. And vision is being able to see all points of view. They're, they're a contribution rather than something you're arguing with. They, they inform you to uh, be more uh, skillful with your stand. You're not against anything, you're for, you're all about for. Um, so for example, Martin Luther King was a beautiful example of a stand taker. It's not that he didn't drop down from, let's say, 30,000 feet is where he was standing a, 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 a healthy and productive life for all human beings, no matter what their color. But he would drop down from that stand and take a position against this kind of legislation or uh, Black kids being kept out of you know, healthy schools but from a stand for all children and all human beings have a healthy and productive life, then the positionality is not so rancorous, is not so angry. It's not so you're wrong and I'm right. It's, it, has the, it has the power to work itself out if it's negotiated or held by a stand taker. I, I, um, I was just with Christiana Figueres in Costa Rica whose father eliminated the army, whose, uh, whose country is, uh, has the highest literacy rate in the world, whose country is on 100% renewable energy. And she uh, is in her own right, one of the most powerful stand takers of, of our time, in my opinion. And he, she negotiated the Paris Accord. Paris Accord, that's impossible that that happened. 196 countries aligning on a document that had them commit to protocols for 2050 that in some cases looked impossible to them. And she negotiated that Paris Accord treaty. Um, and I was just with her and, you know, of course it's too late, too far away. It needs to be 2030. Of course, there's way more that people could and maybe should have committed to, but just for the moment that 196 countries agreed to those kind of protocols is a historic milestone. We've never seen that before in the history of the world. And she did that. And she did that because she took a stand. It wasn't a position, it was a stand and everybody had their position, but her stand, was so powerful, it created a clearing, a visionary clearing where this, the, the positions could loosen. The points of view could, could start to realize, well, maybe everybody doesn't see it this way. <laughs> um, and, and, and come to an alignment that is completely and totally historic. Historians forever, if we're still here, will write about that, that moment. And even though that platform is, is not the platform that will really give us the livable planet we want, it's a platform from which now we can begin to envision 
a restored, completely restored planet, a completely regenerated uh, Earth systems, living systems. So I'm, I'm, I'm really all about stand taking <laughs> and knowing that everybody has a stand within them. And it's not something, it's not a goal. Uh, it's not something you can ever take credit for. It's making a contribution to the continuum, the long continuum of the evolution of humanity. Mm. And you have a role to play in that. And what is that role? Yeah. One of the things you talk about in living a committed life is uh, the invisible forces of faith. Talk about that as uh, our relationship to the unknown and being able to trust that. Uh, which we don't know when we've taken a stand and we have a vision. Um, where does faith come in? Um, well, faith uh, is a word I, I, I probably, did I use it in the book? I'm not sure. I'm not as, as deeply engaged in the word faith as I am in trust, I'll say. Okay. You did use it. Uh, you, you called it the invisible forces of faith in your book. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, 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 you know, when I unpack that now, um, I'll, I'll say that it, it's related very much to trust. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you give your word and then you live by it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's maybe an invisible force of faith in your word mm -hmm. and also trust that there's an integrity mm -hmm. in the universe that, um, Bucky used to call it the intellectual integrity of the universe. Remember that phrase? I love that, that he used to talk about the intellectual integrity of the universe. And, and I would say Bucky taught me to have faith in that. I'll call it now uh, also trust in that. You know, uh, Thomas Berry, the great theologian, said um, to pay attention to the fact that the universe the forces, the invisible energy that put the stars in motion that created the universe is still at work. And we can have uh, faith in that, in that evolutionary guidance and trust. We can have trust in that. Mm -hmm. And if you do, if you have that kind of faith, you allow something to come through you rather than what's my opinion or what do I think or what is my way you you're you become a clearing for something to come through you rather than be your you know here's the way i wanted to go um i love that i i often think of the difference between life happening to you and life living through you that, exactly you know yeah so yeah yeah <laughs> it's like uh book bucky going farther than you or me paradigm to you and me paradigm to you are me paradigm. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Um, mm. Dan Siegel has a, a really great new book. We just did an interview recently on intra, um, intra connected rather than interconnected intra. Uh -huh. So yeah. instead of with it's within that, the same, yeah. the same concept. I love that. Right. Right. I love that, too. That's beautiful. One of the things that has been a big commitment of yours also in all these projects is the power of the feminine and and supporting that. Why is that so important, do you think, at this time? Um, 
Well, I, th I actually think this is the Sophia century. Um, and I'll call it the Sophia century because there's many prophecies that have alluded to that or prophesied that. And if you think of us in the first hundred years of the first century of the third millennium, and that we're 23 years into that, that long view that Bucky always talked about is very helpful because we're giving birth to something this century, something new. And that's the, what the feminine does, uh, not without the masculine. The masculine needs to be involved, obviously. But what gives birth is this feminine energy that lives in all of us, the yin energy, the capacity to generate life. Um, and we need to generate life. We are in a regeneration uh, period. It's not sustainability anymore. That's inadequate, although it was a very important uh, period. But now we're in regenerating. And, and it, the feminine is what generates life. And, um, and so the divine feminine energy coming through women and coming through men and coming probably more visibly and powerfully through women is what's being called for in all the great problems that we face because they're the result of the over-domination of the patriarchy, one could say. You know, Rianne Eisler would definitely say that. The dominator model is, is it's, it's lived its life out. It's done some beautiful things, some extraordinary things. Um, it's been enormously powerful, but it's no longer appropriate and it's out of control where the partnership model, which is more feminine, which is give and take, which is collaborative, which isn't so heavy duty on competition, which is which is never winner take all. It's always win, 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 um, is what's being called for on the planet now. And that has a feminine face, even if it's coming through a very, very extraordinary man like yourself. So um, that is, I think, uh, why I call this the Sophia century. And I say that to give permission and validation and affirmation to the feminine energy that we can all feel actually emerging and coming through us. Mm -hmm. um, so yes. Uh, Beautiful, I love that. And another phrase that you coined in your book, I don't know if you coined it, but I, I just it grabbed me was seeing youth as elders in universe time. Talk about that, I love well, that. That comes from Bucky. That's direct. Oh, does it come from Bucky? Yeah. I know Universe Time does, but yeah. I didn't realize it was seeing the youth that way. Well, I'll just tell you the story that I uh, we had Bucky for dinner, and it was such an honor, and I was so excited. And you know, he came and he wanted to eat in the kitchen with the kids, <laughs> and um, uh, I I thought how charming, you know. And of course, I. So I got him, you know, they were going to, we were going to eat in the dining room. We we're going to have this nice dinner with Buckminster Fuller. No, he wanted to meet in the kitchen with the kids. So the kids came, came down and sat at the table. And uh, my kids were six, eight, and 10. And their names are Billy, Summer, and Zach. And Summer is the middle one. She was eight. And we're sitting around this round table in our kitchen, very informally. And Bucky's like a grandpa sitting there. They didn't have a clue who he was, but, you know, I was just like in awe. And, um, and my daughter Summer said something at, at, at an, as, as an eight-year-old that was it was profound, you know, a, a child gem coming out of her mouth, and it was a showstopper. And um, Bucky turned to Bill, my husband, and myself, and he said, "Never forget, your children are your elders in universe time. They've come into a more complete 
more evolved universe than you'll ever understand except oh their eyes. So true. And boy, did that turn my life around. And my it just sort of rearranged the cells in my body. And he wasn't just talking about my children. He was talking about future generations that are here now. They are the ancestors of an age to come. I am, you are, but so are the people who are being born today. If you think about, especially females being born today, um, some of the biological scientists say that they will live, uh, that the, rather than now, we doubled our um, longevity from when I was born in 1945. And I think you were born right around same, there. Same year. Mm -hmm. uh, the longevity was for, um, uh, was you know, longevity numbers when we were born were something around, you know, 50, 48, 50, uh, certainly women, uh, a little bit more than men. And now it's, uh, you know, 80, 85, not quite doubling. Uh, and scientists and many biologists feel that there's no question about the fact that someone born today is going to live to 100 um, and maybe 105. And you think about that. What will they see? What will they experience? What do they need to be equipped for? What will evolution give them that didn't give us? And my granddaughter, my oldest, is 23. She was born in 1999 in July. And I remember because of the thing that Bucky said, your children are elder and elders in universe time. She's my granddaughter. I, when I looked at her when she was born as this little baby, I realized she's going to inhabit three centuries. She's in the final months of the, the 20th century. She's a female. She may make it all the way through the 21st century into the 22nd century. I think she probably will. And what she will experience and what she will see and what she will need to face. You know, the, the universe will equip her for that. Has, I can see she's now in law school. She's 23. She's, she's starting law school now. She's so wise. She's so attuned to the environmental issues we face. She's so clear about who she is. She's mixed race. So she she self identifies as as a person of color, and she's Muslim. So she has to face the 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 world of religious persecution in whatever form it's taking this century. You know she's she's up for it, and I I so I love that quote from Bucky, and that's how it, that how that's how I heard it. It 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 was right out of his mouth at my kitchen table. <laughs> You know, you've always been such a great storyteller. I remember when I was a seminar leader, God, back in the 70s, and you would come in, well, it was after the Hunger Project, so late 70s, early 80s, you'd come in and tell these great, and everybody would go, wow, you know, and be inspired and support and give money and take a stand for the end of <laughs> hunger. And, you know, storytelling is so important because we live inside of a story. And yes. so I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about what do I want to, I want to call it cleansing our story or somehow upgrading our story. Um, and I'm wondering about your thoughts about that. Well, that's, um, that's exactly what this era needs. You're right, Michael. And it needs to be a story, a narrative mm -hmm. that we invent and create 
that is visionary. And, um, you know, that wonderful phrase from the Bible, without vision, the people will perish. And I think that's really valid. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I really believe, and you and I have been trained in this by the same masters, that we don't really live in our lives. We live in this, the conversation we have about our lives. We don't really live in the, our relationships, our communities, our jobs, our world. We live in the conversation we have about our relationships, our job, our communities, our world. And, and we may not have the power we would like to have over our relationships, let's say, or our community. Uh, but we have absolute omnipotence over the power uh, and omnipotence over the conversation we have about our relationships, our, our community, our world. That's where the levers and dials of life are. So generating or inventing or being privy to narratives that empower, conversations that empower, not getting involved in gossip, not watching um, you know, dystopian videos on television, which there are plenty of them, uh, empowering yourself with what conversation do you want to be in? Because that actually defines your experience of life. So being in, with, with, that doesn't step over the conversations that, are, that need to be had about what's not working, but having those conversations in a context of we're empowered to deal with them. So it's not positive thinking. It's really um, managing the narrative, generating the narrative, inventing the narrative, that's accurate and grounded, uh, but is in that space of possibility. Uh, and our stories too. Our stories become habits. They're habitual. So it's like breaking any habit is with awareness, with bringing awareness to, oh, I'm living in a story and it's become hab habitual. I think it was right. one of them used to say, you know, everyone knows how mother is or everyone knows how their partner is, but no, that's a habit of how we look. So yeah. it has to be brought with fresh eyes and, and a fresh view and awareness in order to cr create that new story, that vision that we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the keys to the kingdom, I think. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying. And I think that's really true. And, and, and the letting go of stories that are, are disempowering us or shutting us down or oppressing us is the work that you've been doing all your life. And I'm, you know, I'm so pleased to hear today that you have a new story about, <laughs> uh, about your own life that you shared with me and maybe you'll be sharing with very your friends. Yeah. So it's, a, yeah, it's a very powerful part of life and one that I, I feel very privileged to be, um, to be aware of, conscious of, because I, as you and I know, we've been, we've had the great privilege of taking so many of the uh, great teachers that we've had and, and applying their teachings to our life. So yeah, thank you for that question and that constant and you, life. you have been one of my great teachers and I'm so grateful for our friendship and all the, you know, you've led me into so many things and I'm so happy that you had. And I just want to mention your, your new book, Living a Committed Life. And um, just thank you so much for everything, taking the time and for your just un unbreakable stand one after <laughs> another and uh still we're still going strong we are at yeah. this age it's good thank you thank you so much michael good to see you good to be with you and congratulations on the new story in your life yeah thank yeah. you okay hope to see you soon take care thanks bye-bye